You know, that amazing feeling when you have that picture-perfect meal ready to go, you're there with your family, and everything goes exactly the way that you want it to. I'm not sure how many of you, like, just enjoy that movie, and so we're laughing about that clip, or some of you were, like, having painful, uh, funny flashbacks and reminders of some family meals that you've had with Cousin Eddie around the dinner table. Everybody's got a Cousin Eddie. Uh, If you can't think of one, it might be you. (laughs) But... uh, If you haven't had a holiday meal experience like that uh, yet, you probably will at some point. One of the things I look forward to the most about the holidays is the traditional food that you get. One of the things that's great about Thanksgiving and Christmas being together so close is you get so many great foods that you get to eat uh, together, although you think we'd be able to to spread it out a little bit. Like you can eat these things at any time during the year. You don't have to save it for just just right now. And I know uh, many of us are concerned about like the extra 15 pounds or whatever you might get during the holiday season. But uh, I've been trying this intermittent fasting uh, program this past week. It's worked great. I'm down eight pounds. It's called the flu. Um, So if you guys want me to share that with you, uh, just let me know this morning. By the way, I did not make anything uh, to bring to the church potluck today. So you're welcome uh, for that. Some of our food traditions are a little bit more uh, unique than others. I know for my family, one of the things that we do that I haven't quite found anybody else yet that does the same thing uh, is on Christmas morning, we have breakfast, which is not that unique. We have the bacon and eggs and homemade bread toast, which is, a, which is amazing. My mom makes that. It's incredible. And uh, the thing that we do, though, that's really unique as part of that breakfast is that we have fried oysters. Anybody? Anybody do that for their Christmas? Now, there's some interesting... Oh, a couple other people do that. Okay, I don't know what that's from or why we do that, but it's amazing, and I love it. And you may think that it sounds weird, but it's not. It's incredible. And so you should try it sometime. It's great. Uh, but on the more relatable side of things, however, there's some uh, more ubiquitous traditions when it comes to our food gatherings around the holidays. One of those, for example, is a little bit not so much about the food as much as it is about the table that you sit at while you're eating your food. For example, anybody ever grow up sitting at the kids' table before? And do you remember what it was like sitting at the kids' table? Not as many as I, I might, might think have had that experience. On the one hand, it was definitely cool to be able to sit around and kind of do whatever you want and hang out with your cousins um, and invariable, uh, invariably other cool relatives who would come and sit with you because you always thought they were cool because they would hang out with you instead of with the, with the adults. But as you get older, you get this feeling, for those of you that are not familiar with what this is like, you get this feeling of, man, it would be really cool to be able to be included at the adult table. Uh, As the years progress, the privilege and prestige of eating at the official main table where the heads of house hold court, uh, that always seemed to beckon. And I don't remember exactly the very first time, like to the date or which Christmas it was where I finally got to transition from the kids' table in the kitchen to the adults' table in the formal dining room, but I do remember uh, the, the feeling of being welcomed into that table. I felt empowered. After all, the homemade jams were right there on the table within arm's length, and you can have as much as you want. Uh, I felt included. I was in on the yearly pleasantries and the regular tired old jokes told every year, uh, and I felt important. I got to engage in conversation with these important people in my life, un- unlike those mere children left at the kitchen table. Of course, now I have children of my own, and uh, there's not enough room for everybody at the adult table, so I'm back at the kids' table with them each year. Uh, But that's not the point. The point is, 
uh, that when we gather together with our families around the holidays, around the table, we participate in something significant and, share, and sacred at, at the shared table. And I know some of us aren't exactly looking forward to sharing a table with their cousin Eddie this Christmas, and it may have been since your childhood that you felt anything sacred was happening at the holiday table. But this morning, we're going to be looking at how Jesus approached table fellowship with others, and I'm hopeful that we'll see not only why it's such a meaningful way and how we celebrate Christmas as families, but also one worth spending time doing, even if it's not the picture-perfect meal that you have envisioned each year. Uh, the shared table we're going to be looking at is in Luke 7 this morning, so if you have Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to encourage you to, to turn there. Um, and it's not part of the Christmas uh, nativity narrative, uh, but that's only because Jesus was at the kids' table in his formative years. And so we're going to skip forward to a time in his adulthood. Uh, holiday feasts and festivals, although this is not one of them, were a mainstay on the Jewish calendar. They had nine by the time that Jesus uh, came around, and I don't know if you can picture that and think about that. If you have nine major holiday feasts throughout the year, how that would go. I don't know if that would be amazing or if that would be a little daunting, like when it comes to, oh man, I need a couple more belts or something, like notches in the belt or something to be able to handle that throughout the year. Um, at one, on the one hand, I think that sounds amazing. On the other hand, I think that sounds exhausting. Uh, but once Jesus begins his ministry, it's a regular theme for him to either be invited to a meal, sharing a meal, or creating a meal. And in Luke's biography of Jesus, it's even more so the case. And so in Luke's gospel, it's a regular theme for Luke to have Jesus either at a meal, on his way from a meal, or coming from a meal. It's a foundational piece for how he communicates some of the culture of the day, what's going on with the societal structure, what's going on with economic class, and how people are valuing and treating each other. Um, and it's one of those things that he puts Jesus in in conversations to contrast and show how co countercultural uh, Jesus' teachings uh, after, uh, uh, really are in its con context. It's not difficult to see how this might be the case for anyone who recalls the politics, the economy, and the social class system of the grade school cafeteria. I don't know how many of you remember what it was like to have the anxiety of who you were going to sit with in the lunchroom, how you might be labeled, of wanting to be at the right table or at the cool table. Uh, while those themes might not seem as prevalent in your life now and as an adult, uh, we've all been shaped by them, and they're still every bit as important. And Jesus shows that in how he shares meals with others. Um, it reveals something about the people that Jesus shares meals with and how he handles them, how he handles the topics they bring up. Um, and it also reveals opportunities for the good news, often counter to the culture that Jesus shared in that setting. And so here's the fascinating dinner scene that we find in, with Jesus in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Sounds pretty normal. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And just before this invitation to dinner, if you look further ahead in Luke uh, 
Luke chapter 7, Jesus has acknowledged a reputation that he's already received, that he's less than proper for the people that he's willing to share a meal with uh, and be around in his life. And that being said, he was still being invited to dinner by prominent figures during his ministry, uh, certainly out of varying types of motivations. This Pharisee is a prominent figure in this time and culture. There were about 6,000 Pharisees. These were teachers of the law. These were the people that kept everybody on the straight and narrow when it came to following God. And so not only would they teach the law and they would have most of the Old Testament memorized, uh, they would also include other interpretations of the law to explain to people how they might perfectly follow God in their life. And so they were always looking for opportunities to kind of pin Jesus down on who he really is and what he was really claiming with his teaching because they wanted to find out whether or not he was right or if he was okay for people to be listening to because of how popular he had become. And so we can see based on the motivations that this Pharisee has, especially with the comment that he makes later in verse 39, that he's very suspect of Jesus. He's not quite sure that he buys into all the things that Jesus has been teaching and becoming popular with the people uh, for. And so he's there trying to find out how legitimate Jesus is. And his eternal, internal dialogue betrays his thinking about the legitimacy of Jesus' teaching and authority. Uh, but let's fully appreciate, uh, before we go there, the, the scene that Luke sets up for us. You may have had some legendary family dinners in your day, like some things that stick out to you as being like, I can't believe so-and-so, uncle so-and-so, it's always an uncle for some reason, uh, did, did that thing uh, at that dinner. And, and it was weird. And, and you might read this and think, well, I don't know, maybe somebody coming in and weeping over your feet and anointing you with perfume and stuff like that, maybe that's just part of the cultural context. Well, it's not. <laughs> we can't just call it, chalk it up to this. This is not a normal thing. This is... Uh, not something you typically have happening at your feet while you're reclined at table. Uh, the dinner party, and, and it may s seem weird, like how, how this woman even have access to Jesus' feet. Well, the, the dinner party would have been uh, literally reclining at table. They would have been on cushions on their left side with a table that's only a few inches up off of the ground. And so they would be in line uh, with, with each other. And so Jesus would be near Simon, uh, who is at the head of the table, and Jesus is the guest of honor. And their feet would be kind of sticking back out on the floor. And so this woman had come along the back of the room, and that's why his feet are accessible. But the fact that she showed up, that she got in, that she's doing this is drawing attention for sure. And her reputation for a sinful life likely referenced a very specific type of way that she made a living. And so uh, it's very possible, for example, maybe she visited Simon's house before, and that's why she was known and allowed to come in. It would just been at a very uh, specific time of night that she would have been there, and maybe that's why she was there. Or maybe it's because sometimes in a big feast like this, those who are well-to-do would allow the riffraff to come in just to make themselves seem pious uh, because they would allow them to take some scraps from the table and leftovers to be able to see how great this, this setting is. Um, <clears throat> whatever the reason was, the Pharisee uh, maybe invited her uh, to be there to try to trap Jesus in, in some way. The Pharisee assumes that Jesus didn't see her for who she really is. But in reality, what's happening here is that the Pharisee doesn't see Jesus for who he truly is. And so Jesus, next to his host and aware of his thinking, illustrates what's really at play during this dinner disturbance. In Luke chapter 7, verse 40, Jesus answers Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. 
Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And you have judged correctly, Jesus said. And you can tell Simon the Pharisee is a little reluctant to answer Jesus because with Jesus he knows that the other shoe is about to drop. In Luke chapter 7, verse 44, Then Jesus turns to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Some of the basic expectations of hospitality and welcoming a guest into one's home with any kind of friendship, Simon never afforded Jesus. It's like the dinner you feel obligated to have, and yes, you might smile and exchange pleasantries, but you don't really want to be there, and there are not really people you particularly enjoy being around, and so you just really put your time in and have them get out as quickly as possible. You don't offer anyone to head to the living room, like, oh, let's be more comfortable on the couch. You don't offer to take their jackets. They bring something to dinner, and you don't try it because you really just don't like them, and so you're letting them know in subtle ways. And this is kind of how Simon is treating Jesus. Not that any of us would act like that or find that at all relatable. And so we end up with a sinner woman who wasn't even invited to Simon's table performing the proper function as host. She's washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears. She's greeting Jesus with a kiss, which is like how we would greet each other with a hug or with a handshake. She's anointing, she's giving uh, with this alabaster jar of perfume, which would have been uh, the sum of her entire life savings at this point in her life. Uh, she's anointing Jesus to honor him uh, for his his uh, for his place and who he is because of a recognition of the sacred moment that was being shared with Jesus here. But this Pharisee had completely missed it. At this point, Jesus' teaching and miracles would have spread enough around for this woman to have heard the fullness and grace of, and truth inherent in the words of this prophet who was so much more. In Luke chapter 6, for example, Luke provides a summary of what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And Luke includes uh, this dinner after those events. And so maybe this was her opportunity to respond to the words Jesus gives in Luke 6. Verse 20, looking at his disciples, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples and huge crowds of people. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Maybe she was responding to this in this moment. She recognized how amazing this was that Jesus would share his table with just regular people. And where Simon, a man like Simon, would have shrugged his shoulders, you know, used to excess, used to plenty of food, used to having dinner parties and all these things at his disposal in his life, not really thankful that he has this opportunity here and thinking, actually, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't understand what all the fuss is about Jesus. But this is what he would have missed in Jesus' brief parable. While the larger debt forgiven resulted in greater love, that's more of a failure on the person with the lesser debt to recognize how much honor is due to the one who forgave the debt in the first place. Simon thought that Jesus was debasing himself by allowing this woman to touch him, and Jesus was. But Jesus also debased himself just as much by sharing Simon's table. 
And this is where Simon misses the significance and the sacred and the shared table with Jesus, is that with Jesus, all are welcome to share the table. Expectations about who should sit at what table and in what place and have access to what people are completely flipped on their head when it comes to Jesus. From a strategic partnership dinner standpoint, the Pharisee's house is the one that makes sense to be at, and yet Jesus doesn't care about that. He makes room for the scandalized sinner to be with him there also. And this is what becomes so powerful about who Jesus is and when and how and why he came starts to impact and affect and change the spirit of why we have our own family and friend gatherings around a shared table. Because for Jesus, it wasn't about capturing sentiment or having that perfect nostalgic meal together. It was about providing for the worth ascribed to others by God. Sharing a meal is such a powerful way to do this with other human beings because at a shared table, we ensure that each other's needs are met. We have to eat and drink at some point. And while many of us experience an overabundance of those things in our lives, when we come together, we are making sure that we are each taken care of. That's one of the things that we're accomplishing, especially when you show up to your meal meeting and have totally forgotten your wallet, Uh, which is not a regular habit of mine, but it did happen, and I'm grateful I didn't have to sit there and watch the other person eat. It's one of those things that we do for each other, is we make sure each other is taken care of when we eat together. The things that we take for granted, that a good server, a great host, or that we would only do for ourselves, are the things we take upon ourselves to take part in God's promises for provision. It's one of the things that we're called to do together as a family of believers, to ensure that each other's needs are taken care of. The second thing that a shared table does is that it provides significance. Take your fondest memory at the family table or the most important dinner that you've ever been invited to in your life. Those moments exist simply for the pleasure of having been invited to the table, for being significant enough for someone to care to have you there. We've all known what it's like to miss out, whether it's from the kids' table or for the lunch table. Maybe you're at the last table at the reception to be able to get up and go to the buffet. Uh, Your presence at someone else's table or their presence at yours are opportunities providing value to others made who are made in the image of God. A seat at the table means that we recognize the person's worth for being there, whether that worth comes from themselves or not. It's because God has made them in their image, and that makes them worth being there with us. And the last thing that it does finally, well, it does more than just this, but finally it it also, a shared table, creates space for the sacred to happen in our lives. Some of the best memories I have are simply being able to sit on a stool in a kitchen in my grandparents' house as they gathered around the table because I got to be a part of their conversations and laughter and stories. And while I don't remember every single interaction that took place or how many times we got to do that, And even though the the memories have long begun to fade, it's the flu recovery, that's what it is. What I will never forget is that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that because I was welcomed there, because I was welcomed there with them, I was loved. I learned that at my parents' dinner table. I've learned that at many of yours. And Jesus institutes in his life, not not just the way that he shares meals with other people throughout his ministries, but he, he institutes a shared table at a meal with his disciples that we continue to recognize as part of our worship together to remind us of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is going to do to remind us 
of that all-encompassing love he has for each and every one of us. In the second to the last meal mentioned in Luke, we find Jesus showing up on the road to Emmaus alongside two of his disciples, and this is from Luke chapter 24. And they don't recognize Jesus, even though he's uh, beginning with Moses and the, all the prophets, he's explaining to them everything that was said in the scriptures concerning themselves. And so just as Jesus, post-resurrection, he's come back to life, he's standing there with two of his disciples, they don't recognize who he is, even though he's regaling them with teachings about himself. And it's not till uh, they share a meal with him that they realize who he is. In Luke chapter 24, verse 30 and 31, Luke records this for us. When Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. It was the way in which Jesus shared his life with his disciples that made him so recognizable. It was the actions, the things that he put into practice, and how they shared a meal with each other, how he shared a life with uh, how they shared, how he shared his life with them throughout uh, throughout his ministry. That those were the things that really made a difference in in their lives. It wasn't the head knowledge that Jesus was able to provide to them. It was the love and care that he showed to them through simply giving thanks for the bread that they had to share. And so I want to encourage all of us uh, to not take our own shared tables this Christmas too lightly or be focused too much on how things look as much as we have the opportunity for significance by being aware of why we're present and why we're gathered together. That there's a sacredness to gathering together because of who Jesus is and who he welcomes to his table. And so I wanna do this, I, I wanna give us a challenge over the next uh, few weeks uh, to, to do one of three things. At the very least, <laughs> they kind of scale down in level of difficulty. Uh, first is have someone over for dinner with, with the intent of simply being hospitable and sharing some sacred space with them and showing that they're significant and providing their needs uh, to them. Uh, make some time. I, I know it's, it's, it's busy. We all have plenty of things uh, that are going on, but, but have someone over for dinner intentionally just to share uh, life with them, to share the presence of Jesus with them. Invite someone out to lunch, bake someone some cookies, whatever, whatever it is. Bonus tip, if you don't eat together as a family, then repent and start doing that. Um, you need to make that, and it doesn't count if there's screen time involved. Um, it doesn't count if everybody's on their phone. Uh, you need to put those aside. You need to have family meal together. And I'll let you look up online all the benefits for that and all the research that exists about why you're gonna be a better person uh, based on that, but your family needs your presence they need that sacred space. They need to feel significant, and they need their needs met in those settings. And so let's, let's be about that and how we share our table, how we share our bread with, our, with ourselves, with our family, with each other. Because when we're willing to share our tables and our bread and ourselves, we're sharing Jesus. And there's nothing more Christmas about food than that. So let me encourage you to, uh, to think about how those things might be true, how you might rethink uh, some of the, maybe the meals that you're dreading having to go into uh, over, over this holiday season, how they might be recaptured uh, for the spirit that, that Jesus brings uh, our families during Christmas. Let me, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the provision that uh, you so richly bless us with, uh, the fact that we might even gather together, have food to share, um, to take care of each other in this way. Um, 
that we might even have an abundance of, of food, to have a full table, to have people to gather around is, is an amazing blessing. And God, we ask that um, you help us to not lose sight of that, uh, the opportunity that's there for us to be able to share the gospel and experience Jesus and help others experience Jesus in um, such a real and tangible way. God, thank you for the constant reminders we have of, uh, of who you are. And we thank you for uh, just the ways in which we get to experience the love that you have expressed us through the birth of Christ. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.